How many are thankful for the name of Jesus? That name brings us alive. That name lifts us up out of a pit and puts our feet on a rock to stand. That name puts a song on our lips. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Hallelujah. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Proverbs 18.10 says, Good morning. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory. If you're a welcomed guest today, and all of you guests are, uh, just I ask you to make yourselves at home today. We, we bless you in the name of the Lord. Thrilled that you're here with us. A lot of great churches in West Memphis and Marion you could have chosen. And we are honored that you've come to worship with us here today. You all may be seated in the presence of the Lord this morning. I'm excited today. I uh, just want to start out by saying thank you so very much to uh, Pastor Haley Bryant, who did a remarkable job with her outstanding team for VBS. Put your hands together and let's give her a round of applause this morning and her whole team. So grateful for all of the wonderful things that God is doing. If you've, if you've driven by the building, you see that things are progressing rapidly. I was there yesterday afternoon about 4 o'clock, and honestly, there's so much of the drywall that's gone up. You can actually walk down halls now and corridors because the drywall is going up, the electrical has gone in, uh, plumbing, uh, all of that stuff is just happening so fast. As a matter of fact, they're ahead of schedule. Uh, at the point that uh, I, th- I don't think they would be offended if we got a little bit of rain. How many of you know we could use a little bit of rain? So been grateful um, for the opportunity to be able to see this progress uh, take place very rapidly. It's exciting, uh, all the things that are going on. You know, it's been a long time in coming. And i uh, just so blessed to be able to have you on the journey with us. Somebody say amen. We... Uh, we are in a series called This Is Us that we have been doing for the purpose of being able to show everyone that the people that we sometimes have as heroes, Bible heroes, uh, have a tendency sometimes to sort of get varnished or glossed over, and we, we start to think and consider them to be another breed different from us because of the great feats that they were able to accomplish and, and yet, if you really read your Bible, if you open the Word of God and you read the struggles that they have, you find out that they were human beings with all kinds of foibles and faults and sin and issues that every one of us in this room wrestles with and faces and temptations and trials. And, and uh, that does not relinquish the demand on us to get delivered from that stuff and get set free and live above it. But what it does is it shows you that God's favor and His love is not dependent on what's wrong in your life. As a matter of fact, somebody says, you know, man, I I just really can't worship because there's just so much wrong with me. And I said to an individual one time, I said, well, you know what? Your focus is wrong. You don't worship because everything's right in your life. You worship because everything's right with God. All that is great and awesome about Him. The focus is not on you and what you haven't done or what you did do wrong, but the focus is on His greatness. And that's where we get our minds off of ourselves and we enter into a place where we start to sing that even though I'm in a desert, dry place, God can give me strength to offer Him praise because He is providing. He's a God who provides. I am being resurrected because I'm serving a resurrected King. And He's moving in me. He's changing me, transforming me. I'm not the same person that I used to be, and I'm not yet what I'm going to be. Somebody say amen. And so we're here to just be reminded of all that God is and that He is doing in and through us. Our 
title of a message this morning is called, God Has Fixed a Fix to Fix Me. I'm not stuttering. I did that on purpose. It is intentionally Arkansas, the way you say that. And uh, I remember the first time I went to New York and I said something about fixing to do something. And Abby's manager said, what, what, something broken? What are you fixing? And I said, no, 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 no. That, that, let me translate those tongues. In the South, that means we're getting ready to do something. How many of you fixing to do something? Okay. Uh, God has fixed a fix to fix me. And uh, when you say it, you can't put the G on it because it doesn't even sound right. Fixing. No, no, no. You, you, you fixing. You, you stop at the end. Everybody say fixing. And so God's, God's fixing us. He's, he's, he's getting us ready. He's working and moving and, and, and making us right in every kind of way. God has fixed a fix to fix me. This is number eight in the This Is Us series. Pastor Jeremy will be preaching next Sunday, and then I'll conclude the series the Sunday after that. And so we're excited. This, how many of you have gotten something out of this this summer? Hopefully. Uh, it was not intended to, to get you into watching the series. If you like it, great. If you don't, that's fine. No big deal, it just was a kind of a connection point because of what I saw in that show and just the real humanity and yet the great love that that family has for each other. And what I want you to see is that you can't do anything more to make God love you more than He does right now. And you can't do anything different to make Him love you anything less. He's, he loves you, His love is unconditional, His love is not temporary, it's not based on something you do or don't do, but His love is eternal. Somebody say amen. All right, we have a couple of texts. The first one has been our series text. Just read along with me. I'll, I'll say it out loud. I want, you, I want you to save your participation for the message text for today. So let me grab this. These are all warning markers, danger, in our history books written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They at the beginning, we at the end, and we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. Everybody say we're just as capable. All right. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Say the last three words with me. Cultivate God confidence. Okay? Our text this morning in the, the message called God Has Fixed a Fix to Fix Me is found in Isaiah chapter 43. I'm personally in the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah in my devotional time right now. And this thing just sort of jumped off the page and became a springboard, a connector point for what I want to do when we go back to Genesis in just a moment. It says, but now read with me. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who what? Created you. O Israel, the one who formed you. Now notice that. Jacob was created, but Israel was formed. Say that with me. Jacob was created, but Israel was formed. Next verse. He says, do not be afraid. Read with me. Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. Emphasize it. Here we go. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. First thing is obvious. It didn't say if. How many of you know life is hard? How many of you know you're going to face circumstances? If you live long enough, you're going to face circumstances for which you do not have an answer. You will walk through rivers that would drown you if it not were for the help of the Lord. You will walk through flames that would, would put a char on you that you can't get on your grill in the backyard 
They would burn you up to a crisp. But God will show up with you like He did the three Hebrew children, the fourth man in the fire, and He'll put a divine asbestos suit on you so you don't burn up. And people see you walking around in the flames of trials in your life. You are going to go through difficult seasons. But He says, don't be afraid because I have ransomed you. Everybody say He paid the price. He says, I have called you. So He's called you by name. He's called you and invited you to participate. And He says, you are mine. Finally, you are His possession. Pray with me this morning. Gracious God and Father, thank You for this opportunity to stand before You as we worship today, as we've received the Lord's table. Thank You for the covenant meal, for blood that was shed, for, for a body that was broken. We receive that today in the, the bread and the juice. We remember Your death, Lord, until You come. We ask you today that as we open our hearts that you, Holy Spirit, would do what only you can do. I acknowledge before you, before every person listening, that I desperately need you, Lord. I know that. Apart from you, I can't do anything. But I also know that I am not apart from you any longer. Christ is in me, the hope of glory. Get in my thoughts, be in my words, and penetrate the hearts of your people. And be our ears and be our eyes and give us understanding and perception so that we can know the glory to which we have been called. I ask you boldly these things in the incomparable and the magnificent name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. God has fixed a fix to fix me. One thing that I want you to grasp this morning in the next few moments is this concept here. My life verse is found in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Being confident of this very thing, that he who started the work of transformation in my life is not going to forget and lay me down somewhere and leave me as an unfinished project in his cosmic garage. God doesn't leave things undone. It may take a little longer sometimes than you think it ought to, but He's still working on you. Somebody say amen. One thing, read it out loud. God who began a good work in you will continue to work on you so He can work through you. Now that you've grasped that, He started to work inside us. He's always about the business of working on us for the purpose of being able to work through us. And advance His kingdom. Say it with me one more time like you mean it. Here we go. God who began a good work in you will continue to work on you so that He can work through you. I want to take a few moments and just remember our family history. All of this began with a guy by the name of Abram. Genesis chapter 12, he's living in Ur of the Chaldees. It's modern day Iraq. He is not a God follower in the sense of the monotheistic God that is going to reveal himself to Abram. He is a polytheistic believer. He's worshiping the stars of heaven, the constellations, the sun, the moon. As a matter of fact, specifically, he's a moon worshiper. And God goes on the pursuit of a guy by the name of Abram, a dude that's already 75 years old, and Abram means exalted father. He's married to a beautiful woman, whose name is Sarai. And God comes into their lives in both of them and He 
reveals himself in, a, in such a way that Abram knows that this is the God above all gods, the capital G God above all little g gods. This is the king of all kings. This is the Lord of all lords. And Abram hears a promise that comes to him and to his heirs. God takes Abram out and he shows him the dust of the earth and he says, all of those specks of dust, try to count them because your heirs are going to number greater than the dust of the earth. Three different times God meets with Abram. After the second time he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Now we say it in Arkansas, we say it in America, in English, it's sort of been westernized. We say Abraham. But if you were in the Middle East, it would probably be Ibrahim. Okay? And so God takes Abram and adds aha to it. Everybody say ha. He takes Sarah, takes the A-I off, and he puts an A-H. Everybody say ah. So between these two, this husband and wife, that are about 15 years apart. Abraham is, uh, Abram at this point is 75, Sarah is about 60. When God shows up and he says, I'm going to change your name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Now this 75-year-old dude had never had a child yet. I think that they had probably just chalked it up to whatever we accumulate through our lives that we will give it to our faithful servants. Because no children had been born, Sarah was barren. And God makes the promise and He says, I am going to, on another occasion, give you the heirs that are greater than all of the specks of the sand, the particles of sand by the sea. One clear night, Abraham looks up to the sky and God says, look at the stars and see if you can count them because I'm going to give you an inheritance, a progeny. I'm going to cause your descendants to number greater than all the stars of the heavens. And so God gave Abraham three metaphors. Dust of the earth, sand of the sea, the stars of the heavens. Every one of those representing a prophetic type and a symbol. Dust of the earth being the seed of Ishmael, sands of the sea being the, the seed of Isaac, and then literally the stars of the heaven being the church, spiritual Israel. Those that were born of a heavenly birth. Come on, somebody say amen. Look at your neighbor and say, you didn't know it, but you're a star. Is that cheesy? It's okay, I'm making my point. God calls you a star. The promise of God to you is bigger than just you. It's multi-generational. God's promised some of you in this room. Matter of fact, He's promised all of us. We all enjoy, we are beneficiaries of promises that were given to someone else, particularly to Jesus. Jesus is our covenantal head. I've been in the book of Hebrews all summer preparing to begin a verse-by-verse study in the book of Hebrews beginning this fall, October, November. We'll do eight weeks. Next April and May in 2019, we'll do eight weeks. Next October, November in 2019, we'll do eight more weeks. Spring of 2020, April and May, we'll do eight more weeks, hopefully trying to finish it in about 24 weeks. The book of Hebrews is an absolutely amazing, marvelous book. The, the book is called the book of better things because everything in Hebrews is better than something else. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. He sits Lord over a better resurrection. We have, we have a better covenant that is built upon better promises. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. We have better grace and a better hope and a better resurrection. And Jesus has been given a better name than the name that angels have been given. You know what? If you'll stay with Jesus, your life will get better. Better and better. 
We go through difficult times that has the ability, depending on your perspective and your, the way you see things and the way you come out on the other side, you will either be bitter or you will become better. Come on, somebody. I'm excited to jump into Hebrews because it's just so powerful. We will hear again the stories of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Esau. All of these appear in Hebrews. And they're pictures, they're types, they're prophetic symbols of what God is going to do through a spiritual seed, the stars of the heavens that are going to touch the whole world. Because Jesus is the only one in history that answers the promises that are in the direct lineage that God made to Abraham. All the land promises, as far as your eye can see, I'm going to give it to you. To Abraham that became a literal 400 years later as his descendants entered into the promised land became known as Israel, and we're going to talk about why that name arose today. But when we come to the New Testament, it gets magnified because Paul the Apostle takes Romans chapter 4 and he says, Abraham would become heir to the world, not just a little strip in the Middle East called Israel or Palestine, but Abraham would be heir of the world because through Christ God has been given or gave Jesus the promises that the whole world was His. And through David, he was given the throne promises. So through Abraham, we have the whole earth as ours. And through David, we have the the throne or the right to rule it. And the only one who has the fulfillment of the right, him whose right it is, the book of Ezekiel says, his name is Jesus. He's the descendant of Abraham, so the earth is his. He's the the descendant of of David, so the throne is his. And so the land is the earth and the throne is the right to rule it. And the one who's sitting on that throne, his name is Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. So 25 years later, God shows up and Sarah gets pregnant. And she actually laughs in the tent when the angels of the Lord appear. And he says, okay, that's fine. You can laugh if you want to, but this time next year, you're going to be birthing a son. And when they birthed the son, guess what they named him? They named the baby Isaac. Everybody say, ha ha. Isaac means laughter. Well, guess what? For 25 years, God made an investment into Abraham. He put a ha in his name. And he made an investment in Sarah. And he put a ah in her name. And so when when ha and ah come together and get in agreement, guess what? Ha ha is born. That's not just cute. That's not a coincidence. God's put a seed inside your spouse and one inside you. And when you can quit picking at her and quit criticizing him and you decide that you're going to love and forgive and and begin to work together and pray for each other and stand together in faith, God will move mountains and show up and show out in your life just like he did for Abraham and Sarah. And he'll put an aha in your life. God, has, who began a good work in you, will continue to work on you so he can work through you. Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah, and they had a baby named Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, and Rebekah has twins wrestling in her womb, and they're born, and their names are Esau and Jacob. Jacob's story, my point number two. It's found in Genesis chapter 25 through, verse, through, through chapter 32. We're not going to take time to read all that. I'm just going to tell you the story quickly as I can. By the way, if you have some paper or something to take some notes, we apologize that we don't have bulletins this morning because we had a printer malfunction. So that will be fixed this week, back on track this next week. Esau and Jacob are born. 
they're lying in the crib or whatever kind of baby equipment that they had in those days and looking at these two handsome baby boys and I mean just born mom is relieved because of after carrying this this dual wrestling two nations the Bible says were in her in her womb wrestling and she delivers both of them and as soon as they're born Esau was the firstborn Jacob was the secondborn and he reaches out and takes hold of his brother's heel and he's named Jacob because Jacob means heel catcher it means trickster schemer deceiver supplanter used car salesman don't get offended by that there are good used car salesmen, but you know what I mean. It's a metaphor that communicates somebody who's a shyster, a con man, or con woman, whatever, trying to take advantage of you. You, you remember the Andy Griffith show? Remember when Barney bought that old thing and the steering wheel starts coming out because they put sawdust in the transmission? Y'all remember that episode? Okay, i got to stop. I don't need to take time to tell that. Anyhow. Because he got conned. Some used car salesman conned Barney and he had a, had a lemon. And so Jacob is named con man. He's named trickster, schemer, heel catcher, supplanter. And as you know, the story, it's pretty, it jumps pretty quickly. I mean, it's like they're in the, in the crib and, and, and their names are given. And the next thing we know, uh, uh, Esau, who is an outdoorsman, you know, his, his, uh, his picture would be on the cover of, of hunting and fishing. Uh, he, ha- he hangs out at Bass Pro Shop all the time, and he, he dresses in camo. And he's, a, he's an outdoorsman. He likes to hunt and fish, and he's, a good, he's good at it. Jacob is a mild-mannered man, dwelling in tents. That doesn't mean he's soft or he's effeminate or anything like that. He just had gifts and skills and hobbies and dislikes or likes that were different than his brother Esau. But the Bible says that Isaac loved Esau because Isaac was an outdoorsman. And he loved the flavor of the wild game that Esau was skilled at catching. He would go out on excursions and be gone sometimes days, weeks at a time. And he would come home with fresh kill. And he and his mom, Rebecca, would would roast the game and they would cook it up. And it was spicy and Isaac loved all that flavor. Isaac, I'm sorry, yes. yeah. Esau comes in one day from a hunt. And evidently he doesn't have much success because he's not had anything to eat. And he's literally so famished, he smells the stew that his younger brother, just by a few minutes, the twin that was born right after him, Jacob, is cooking. And it's just a bean stew. And the Bible tells us the story that Esau was so famished, he begged Jacob for something to eat. And Jacob says, that's fine, I'll give you some of my stew, but you give me your birthright. Because in that particular Middle Eastern practice, it was, it was a, a, a family tradition that the firstborn son got the lion's share of the family inheritance. If the parents were gone and there are two children, then it would actually be divided into three and the firstborn would get two-thirds and then the secondborn son would get a third. The responsibility for taking care of elderly parents that were still living rested with the firstborn son. He had to carry on the family name, the family business, keep the vineyard producing, keep the flocks growing. Whatever the family business was that produced a living for all of them, the firstborn son would have the investment and the responsibility of protecting and in continuing that investment. And so it was very common that the firstborn would have what was called the birthright. They got a bigger piece of the pie. It wasn't just, you know, the American idea of, 
you know, you have four kids, so when you die, that's, everything's split four ways. That's not biblical. It's a nice American idea, but it's not the biblical idea. And, and the biblical idea, too, is that you invest in someone who's going to be responsible. You don't, you don't reward idiocy. You got someone who's an idiot and you know they're going to just waste it. You don't, you don't even inherit them. You, you, you give them something, but you don't give them something they're just going to throw away that you've taken your whole life to put together. And so the idea in this Middle Eastern culture was the birthright is a big dollar amount. And, and you know something? When I see this, I don't get upset with Jacob because he was trying to trick Esau. I'm more upset with Esau because... He despised his birthright so much that in the moment of weakness, of just a hunger pain, he was willing to give up something so valuable just for a bowl of beans. He despised his birthright. Too often, I think, there are times when we're in places of stress and duress and we make critical life-changing decisions when we ought to get a, a meal in our belly, we ought to get a good night's sleep on a, on a, in a good bed, and we ought to ha- have a, a time of prayer and say, God, give me wisdom, help me to make good decisions, not critical ones that are going to affect the rest of my life that I'm making in a moment. Esau made a, made, a, made a momentary decision based on a hunger pain, and he gave away his birthright. Now, you know, Jacob was a trickster. He was a schemer, but yet God's favor rested on Jacob anyway. How many of you know God loves you in spite of all your mess? Somebody say amen. And even if you don't always do everything right, He'll still love you and put His favor on you. Everybody in the room is a testimony to that. Because everybody in the room has got something you're still struggling with. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I'm telling the truth. We're going to be real at victory. Come on, look at somebody and say, He's going to be real. Esau is famished. The Bible says he despised his birthright. Jacob is a trickster. He's a schemer. Genesis 27, we see that Isaac has grown old. His eyes are very dim to the point that he cannot see. And so he calls Esau, his firstborn son, in. And he says, son, go out into the fields and hunt game for me and prepare my favorite dish and bring it here for me to eat. Then I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. Don't confuse the birthright and the blessing. The birthright has to do with your placement as a son, your birth order, and how much you're going to get. The blessing is just the, the, the beneficial reception of God's goodness and His favor on your life that is pronounced by the paternal leader, by the parent. I remember when Dawn and I were getting married and we went to the nursing home to see my grandparents. And granddad and granny were there sitting in their wheelchairs. And granny says, give me a hand. And I stuck my hand out. And she says, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. And it was a moment. And I can tear up just thinking about it. Not because not I just miss granny. But I knew that it was something very powerful in that moment. What Isaac was going to do for his sons, my granny was doing in that moment. She was a prayer warrior. She was a woman of God. Poor as Job's turkey. They never owned their own car. But there was something of the blessing of the Lord in her life and in her pronouncement. She says, Michael and Dawn, put your hands together and give me your hand. And we stretched out our hands and she took our hands into hers. And she slapped the top of it and she said, the blessing of the Lord be upon you in your life, in your marriage. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for my grandmother's prayers. Isaac says, go, go get some wild game and bring it in here. The, 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 the favorite dishes that you've made over the years, I want to eat that. And he says, then I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. And Rebecca's in the kitchen and she hears about it. 
So she hatches a plan and she says, Jacob, hurry. Esau's gone. He's in the field. He'll be gone for days. Run out there. Run out there to our herds and grab two of our young goats and bring them in here. And I'm going to prepare them. And you will take that meal in to your father so that you can get the blessing. So Rebecca's deceiving and deception runs in this whole family. Some of you this morning, I want to say to you, you may have been raised in the family where you've seen all kinds of tricking and scheming and deception and, and things, relationships breaking up and things under, brushed under the carpet and things being uh, kept, kept hidden and in secret. And, and, and because of that, it's, it's put a sense of distrust in your life. God can reach into your heart and give you a sense of confidence and stability in spite of the junk, the atmosphere that you were raised in, an atmosphere of deception, an atmosphere of lying. So many people have been touched by that. You know what? You're not the only one. Don't think you're a victim and you're in this by yourself. The people in our own spiritual lineage, Rebecca, a godly woman, was still deceiving her husband and deceiving her firstborn son because she loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau. So he says, Mom, I don't know how you think we're going to do this because Esau is a hairy dude. Dad's going to know. And so basically she dresses him up in some clothes that he had left behind that had the smell of the fields and wild game and probably, you know, some deer urine or whatever. You know how you, 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 you hunters go to the field and rub all the kinds of ungodly things on yourself, you know. So you make the deer feel at home. And so Rebecca's all about that. She's just smearing all kinds of stuff, wild, gamey scents all over him and put, dressing him in Esau's clothes. And she, she guts the goats and she strips the hide from the goat and she cleans it up and wraps it around Jacob's hands and on the small of his neck so that when he goes in to talk to his dad and his dad reaches up and feels his hairy neck and feels his hairy hands, that Isaac, who can't see, would be fooled. He would be deceived. So he does it and he takes the food and Jacob walks in and he says, My father... Isaac says, who are you? Are you Esau or are you Jacob? He lied. He says, it's Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you told me. Here is the wild game. Now sit up and eat it so you can give me your blessing. Isaac says, but wait, boy, how, how did you get this so quickly? Esau says, the Lord your God put it in my path. Well, you know, that wasn't quite a lie. It was a half-truth. The Lord, through Rebekah, God provided, I guess you might say. He says, come closer so I can touch you and make sure it's you, Esau. He says, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are Esau's. The scripture says, but he did not recognize Jacob because his hands felt, everybody say felt, his hands felt hairy just like Esau's. Now, let me, let me stop and extract the principle that we all need to learn from this so that we don't make the same mistake. Get the danger out of this lesson. Don't always make critical decisions just because it feels right, because your feelings can fool you. Come on, you might feel around and actually get yourself a goat hair feeling, but what you think it is is not really what it is. It might look like it's an impossible deal. You can't lose. And come on, you know, you know as well as I do that when you're having difficult times and you, you're struggling to pay your bills and you can't sleep at night and you're sitting up and you're watching every Jacob on late night television try to hawk his wares and sell you his get-rich-quick scheme. If you'll just buy this book for $199, all the principles so that you can be a trillionaire in real estate by the end of the year are here if you just go ahead and make this investment. 
Like Daddy used to say, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching so good. Don't make critical life decisions just because it feels right. Now listen, good decisions can feel right. But when everything is jumping up and down and staring you in the face and reason is telling you this doesn't make any sense and you look at the Word and you know the Word says it's not right but it feels so good. How could anything that feels so good, it feels so right, how could it be wrong? As the song says. Well, there's a whole heck of a lot of stuff that could be wrong that feels so right. What is that line out of Coming to America? If loving God is wrong, I don't want to be right. If you've you've seen the movie, don't waste your time on it. If if you have, you know what I'm talking about. Just because it feels good doesn't mean it's right. Are y'all hearing me this morning? Am am I in the right church talking to the right crowd? Am, am 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 I reading anybody's mail this morning? Am I ringing your doorbell? Is there anything happening in your life that you're looking at that feels pretty good, but everything around you, including your spouse, is saying, this is not right, don't do it. You better wake up and listen, sir. You better pay attention, ma'am. You better let the Word of God be final authority in your life just because it feels right. Come on. Isaac was a godly man and he got fooled. He was deceived because it felt like his firstborn son. Esau, you know what happens, Esau comes home, Jacob has gotten the blessing, he's stolen Esau's birthright, now he's stolen his blessing too. Esau comes home with the wild game and discovers what Jacob and Rebekah have done and he's furious. He has the taste of blood in his teeth and it's not, it's not wild boar, it's Jacob, it's Jacob. I can taste that heel catcher in my teeth, Esau was saying. Rebecca fears for her favorite son's life and she sends him away. Everybody say deception runs in the family. Jacob ended up at Uncle Laban's house and what he didn't realize that Jacob the heel catcher, the trickster, the schemer, the supplanter, the used car salesman is about to meet his match in his Uncle Laban. What goes around comes around. Karma is... Well, karma is mess. Thank you, Holy Ghost. You know, when you start wading off in the bumper stickers, you can get in trouble. He falls in love with beautiful Rachel. He works seven years for her only to wake up the next morning after his wedding night and realize he's in the bed with the wrong woman. Laban, what have you done to me? You you crazy man, you're out of your mind. Well, it's not our custom. Well, yeah, why didn't you tell me that before all this happened? Well, I'll give you Rachel too, the one that you love, but it's not right in our custom to give away the second one in front of the first, and the first daughter has to be married first, and go on and finish out your marriage week with her, and then you can have Rachel too, but work another seven years for me. He works 14 years, and during that time, Laban changes his wages seven times, the Bible says. Everybody say, the trickster got tricked. He works seven more years for Rachel and God blesses Jacob. God, the Bible says that Laban even confessed, look, my house is blessed because you're here. Some of you don't know it this morning, but the company you're working for is still in business because it's your job. They might have struggled, but God saw to it that it stayed open for you. And guess some of them have closed, but God moved you to a better spot. 
Don't ever waste your time whining about something that's closing because you are a, you are a, 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 you are a child of God, a believer in God's ability to provide for you, and He will always take you out of something that you're in into something greater if you'll put your trust in Him. Jacob's still up to his old tricks. Laban is changing his wages, and they make a deal. All the solid animals, goats and sheep that are going to come out of the flock, they'll be Laban's, but all those that are spotted and striped, they'll be Jacob's. And so Jacob finds a way. He, defies, he devises a way. His ingenuity, his ability to make things happen. And I mean, he's a mover and a shaker. He's a hustler. He has the ability to do it. And he devises a way to hybridize the animals so that more of them come out spotted and striped. Read it. I don't have time to go into the details of the story. But the sons of Laban basically begin to catch on to what uh, Jacob is doing and they get angry about it. And Laban changes his attitude and Jacob's flocks become stronger and stronger and he, he catches the strong ones that are mating and he puts them up in front of a watering trough with, with branches that have been stripped and striped and he marks the, the identity of those, those children, the progeny, the, the, the young baby goats, the young sheep and so that more of them are born spotted and striped. He finds a way to hybridize the animals and he does it in his favor so that he can get wealthier and wealthier and richer and richer. Jacob decides after he's birthed a bunch of babies, he has two wives, he loves his family, he's become a very, very, very wealthy man and he says, it's time for me to go home. He's been in Laban's house for probably about 20 years now. Now remember, what's our one thing? God who began a good work in you will continue to work on you so he can work through you. And so God's working on Jacob so he can work through Jacob. My last point this morning, and I'm finished, is this idea of how we get from Jacob to Israel, because they're the same guy. God changes his name. Just like God changed the names of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. God changes through the ministry of Jesus. One of the disciples' name is Simon, which means read. And a reed just sort of floats in the wind. It's just sort of whatever, whatever the, 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 the cultural trend and the wind that's blowing, that's whatever the reed's going to do. Jesus looked at Simon one day and he said, No longer is your name going to be Simon, but I'm going to call you Petra, which means rock. He says, Upon this rock of revelation, I will build my church. And Simon became Petra, Peter. He, he, he changed from a reedy, just blowing the wind kind of a dude that so many times opened his mouth and stuck his big foot, his big fisherman foot right in it. And he became the strength of the church, the rock upon which Jesus said, this is going to be a major stone in the foundation of the work of the Lord. So Peter was transformed. He, he was transformed because he took on a new identity. His name was changed. His nature was changed. He became a rock instead of a reed. Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to call you Rocky. How many of you would like Jesus to call you Rocky? Well, anytime somebody's name gets changed in the Bible, it means that there's a nature change. As a matter of fact, your name is tied up. When you sign your name, it's your signature, your sign nature. You're saying that your nature is to follow through with the terms of the agreement. You're going to pay your debt on time. You're going to clear this thing up in the next 60 months or the next 
30 years for your house mortgage or 15 years or whatever, whatever kind of agreement you have, they get your signature over and over and over and over and you're signing your identity, your nature, your name, your signature. You're saying, this is who I am. I will follow through. So your name and your nature are linked. That's the reason when we lay hands on babies in this, in this church and we dedicate them to the Lord, all the time I will tell you what the meaning of the name is because you don't realize it. That's what you're calling them every time you get angry. Michael! My mom would scream at me. When she would say, Michael, I was in trouble because I was Mike all the rest of the time. <laughs> Whatever your name is, find out what it means because there's, a, there's an identity with that. There's something, just like the Old Testament dude named Caleb. His name means dog. Well, that doesn't sound too appealing. Oh, yes, it does, because he was a warrior, and he had a dogged tenacity to him. When he was 80 years old, said, give me this mountain. How many of you know in Christ, there's a little bit of Caleb in all of you? So always look at what you've been called your whole life, because there is a spiritual significance to that. Simon's changed to Peter. Abram has changed to Abraham. And here we're going to see that God says, you know what? I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. I'm not going to call you trickster, schemer, deceiver, supplanter, heel catcher, used car salesman anymore. Chapter 32 of Genesis, it says, During the night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his eleven sons and crossed the Jabbok River. It's an old name for the Jordan. Crossed the Jabbok with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. Now he's headed home. He and Laban have parted ways. And he's got his wives and all of his children and his exceedingly great flocks and herds and all of his servants. And he is a multi-millionaire moving across the desert. He's headed home to see Esau, who he hasn't seen in 20 years. The dude that he stole his birthright and his blessing from. He's, he's scared to death. He's trepidatious. He's wondering, what could it possibly be? I mean, this guy could be seething for 20 years. His heart could be a cauldron of hatred. Because 20 years ago when he fled the house, Esau had the taste of blood in his mouth, vengeance. He was ready to kill Jacob. and He didn't know how Esau was going to receive him. But he knew that if he was going to go on, he was going to have to go back and say, I'm sorry and take responsibility for the things that he knew he had done wrong. Come on, some of you in this room, if you ever grow in God and if you ever mature and if you ever experience the kind of success you want to, you will never do it without taking personal responsibility. If you succeed and hang on to any of your success, it's not just dollars and cents, it's fruitfulness in every area, in your marriage, raising your children, in a business, in a career, in a vocation, in a calling, whatever you do, it's because you're going to get willing to stop blaming everybody else for everything that's going on wrong in your life and you stand up and take personal responsibility and you say, I am where I am because of decisions I've made I am where I am because some stuff was done to me, and I can't help that, but I have a choice in how I'm going to respond to it. Thank you, too, for clapping. Everybody else, go ahead and join those, too. Come on. Not for me, but for the realization of the powerful word that I just shared with you. We have to take responsibility. So he's sending all this stuff out, putting all of his possessions in front of him, all these flocks and herds, and every one of his servants is spaced about... 50 yards apart, pushing herds along the way. 
leading them toward home, toward Esau. And he says, every time you see one of you servants comes up and sees my brother Esau, tell him this is a gift from your brother Jacob who is indebted to you. And it happens over and over and over and over again. And finally, they meet. But before they meet, this is what happens. Verse 23, after taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. Verse 24, read it out loud with me. Here we go. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. How many of you know God brings every one of us to a place at some point in our lives where there's nothing left? It's just me and my recognition that God, you're all I've got. I mean, you you can have millions of dollars in the bank and be in the black. But when you realize how nothing, all of that stuff is, and you really know it's just you and God, you're in a place where God can bless you like you've never even dreamed of in your life. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man, a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn. The darkest seasons that you face sometimes are in the wee hour of the morning, wondering if day will ever come. Wondering if circumstances will ever change. Those have been the hardest, <clears throat> the hardest times in my own life personally. Sometimes they're between 2 and 4 o'clock in the morning. Just wake up, get up, and can't go back to sleep. In a big house, in a king-size bed that's just me. And I know I'm big, but I'm not that big. <laughs> and I'm looking over there. had a dream the other night, and I... Literally rolled over to. <clears throat> to to reach out to touch it on and then, then woke up out of the dream and but she's not there. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not trying to in any way use my circumstance to appeal to your emotions. I'm just telling you, if, if you think I haven't had a moment in my life for weeks and months where I have wrestled with myself, wrestled with God. Going, God, I don't understand. I know your mystery is too great for me to understand. But why? Why, why, why didn't you step in and stop this from happening? <clears throat> if you think I haven't wrestled with God and wrestled with myself, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. Everybody in your life, if you live long enough, you face something. And I, God forbid, I'm not speaking any of that on you. I would not wish what I have been through on my worst enemy. But everybody faces some kind of circumstance where you have to wrestle for your next breath. We have to wrestle with faith where you're so filled with doubt and, 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 and questions and going, God, are you even there? Where you have to just say, God, I, I determine, I grit my teeth and I determine I'm going to keep my faith and my trust in you. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. I mean, just grabbed his leg and just... I don't, want to be, I don't want to be crass, but when you read the Hebrew here, it had nothing to do with the hip. He kicked him in the parts that he reproduced with. And the brothers all know what I'm talking about. It's, it's not, a, not a fun thing. It's an illegal move in fighting. Jacob... And God were in a wrestling match. And God busted Jacob in his reproductive ability. He says, you're not going to keep reproducing this tricking and scheming and heel catching and this deception. 
Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless. The, the, the original says, until you bless me. Everybody say until. Some of you are on the verge of a breakthrough. Don't quit now. Even though you don't feel like it, even though you're so out of breath, even though you just are spiritually depleted and you're exhausted, do not quit now. Because you made it through the night and the dawn is about to break. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me, unless you bless me. And he says, what is your name? Now, now remember with me, God doesn't, when he asks you a question, it isn't because he doesn't already know the answer. God asked Adam when he comes walking in the garden in Genesis 3, Adam, where are you? Now, how many of you know God had the latest GPS tracking system? He knew exactly what part of the garden Adam was in. It was a relational question. You're hiding. Where are you with me? Why are you doing this? God knew the answer to that one too. What is your name, the man asked. He replied, Jacob. And he saw it that moment. It was revealed to him. It was self-revelation. Heel catcher, trickster, schemer, supplanter, used car salesman. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel. Everybody say Israel. He says, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. And he goes on to ask his name. And as a matter of fact, just to give you a quick summary, he says, the sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, which means face of God. That's what Jacob named the place where he met God in a wrestling match, in the cage match. And it says, he left Peniel and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. What am I telling you this morning? When you really encounter God, you can't walk the way you used to. Your life's going to be different. You can't keep doing and acting and behaving the way you used to, just on every whim or whatever. But you know what? You're going to have a little bit of limp. You're going to, it's going to be obvious to everybody else that you've been in a wrestling match and you, you've got some scars that you took away from that wrestling match. And guess what? God changed you and transformed you and called you by a new name when you made it through that period. I'm on the way out. I'm, people ask me all the time, how are you doing? And I say, well, I'm progressively getting better. It's not, things are not better, but it's just more tolerable. And it just takes time. I was with Chip when he was here. We were coming back from Memphis. We'd eaten together. And I said, you know, I don't know anybody that God just zaps out of what I've been through. It just takes time. God is, is relentless in His pursuit for you. We are blessed because of whose we are. We're not our own. We belong to Him. I don't have the favor of God on me because I earned it or because I'm so good. I have the favor of God on me because I'm His child. And He bought me with His blood. Every one of us has something that God still needs to fix. Say amen. I dare you to. But God has fixed the fix to fix me. And I'm going to walk through the fire. And I'm going to walk through the water and I'm not going to drown and I'm not going to burn. You know, this generation wants an instant change, an instant gratification. Give me six-minute abs. Let me spend $199 and be a trillionaire in two years in real estate. Let me go do a $49.95 cryo treatment. And, and let, me, let me take some cold and let, let's, let's freeze away all this gathering that I have around here. 
My Lord and my God in heaven, do you know how much money it'd take me in cryo treatment? <laughs> Who's laughing that hard over there? I rebuke you. <laughs> what is your name? When God asks you what is your name, it isn't because He doesn't know your name. He's wanting you to admit what you're struggling with. You will never change until you break your denial and call your problem what it is. God help me, I'm an alcoholic. God help me, I'm a drug addict. God help me, I I lust and I've not been faithful to my spouse. God help me, whatever it is and you fill it in. It's like an AA meeting. Hello, my name is Michael and I'm an alcoholic. you got to get before God and say your name. That's what happens when you come to Christ. You say, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And Jacob gets transformed into an Israel. The first step toward change is breaking denial and calling it what it is. Are y'all getting anything out of this this morning? I'm wrapping it up. Stay with me. You can't have a real encounter with God and not be changed. You go from Jacob to Israel where you become a prince and a prevailer with God. Don't quit wrestling until you get your blessing. Look at your neighbor and say, it ain't time to quit. Last one and I'm finished. You will never walk the same after you've had a real God encounter. Over the years, I have just begged God for help and sometimes I have empowered people because of a gift too quickly without waiting to see if they had a limp, if they'd been busted by God or not, if they could be trusted. And because I didn't wait, I got busted and got betrayed. You know, it hadn't taken me but a time or two to learn that. And I back up and I wait a little while and I check folk out and I kind of sniff around, see if I smell the field on them. I feel around and I'm looking for something more than a goat hair feeling, just hairy hands and a neck. How many hear what I'm talking about? Y'all with me this morning? It's like the, the worm, the caterpillar that spins itself into its own burial tomb, into a cocoon. You've all heard the illustration. You've probably seen it on YouTube where the guy sees just the slight emergence out of the cocoon of a, what's going to be a beautiful monarch butterfly. And the butterfly is struggling. And it just seems to go on and on and on for a day or two. And it's not making any real headway, just a tiny little opening. And so the guy decides he's going to help the butterfly. And he takes a pen knife out and, and slices gently open that cocoon. And so the butterfly just flops out onto the table out of the cocoon all of a sudden. But the sad part of the story is, is that the man didn't help the butterfly. The butterfly actually died because it's the struggle that forces the life juices into the wings that gives the wings strength so that the, the butterfly can fly when it finally gets itself set free. The worst thing you can do is try to fix somebody else that God has fixed to fix to fix them in. The worst thing you can do is try to throw some money at a kid that doesn't know how to manage finance. Let me just give you my own confession from several years ago. I did not know how to say no to my wife and to my children, and it was always instant gratification. Slide a card, it's easy. And before I knew it, I was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in credit card debt. And I woke up one day and I said, we, I, I can't keep living this like this. Forgive me, Dawn, Drew and Abby. I'm sorry. I, I guess maybe there's something in me that's tried to just keep up with other folks. But those days are over. And I took another job. I started teaching piano. And I employed my degree and my postgraduate degree in history and taught at a couple places in Mid-South. And 
Victory University and A-State and just different places wherever there was an opening for a semester, a year or two at a time. And previously, I had gone to the bank and I'd refinance. Man, it'd feel so good. I'd get everything down into one payment. Credit cards all paid for. And we'd turn around in two years and I'd have that payment and plus all the credit cards would be hocked back up again. Oh, really, Pastor? Seriously? Yeah, I'm just confessing who I am and what I've done. Now, I'm not in that kind of shape now. Matter of fact, I got out of that kind of shape before dawn, two or three years before she passed. And you know what happened when I had to work hard and had to apply myself and had to learn how to start saying no? No, we, no doesn't mean no forever. No just means no right now. We'll do it later when we can pay cash for it. And do you know, God delivered me from what was causing that problem by letting me go through it instead of pulling me up out of it. You know, with some kind of a lottery mentality. You just throw money at somebody and two years later they've, gone, they've blown through $30 million and have nothing to show for it. Happens all times with rock stars and pro athletes. All over and over and over and over all the time. And we, we have just such a way of, let me just fix this. I, 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 I'm pretty ingenious. I can, I can manipulate this. I can intimidate these circumstances into play. I'll make a few calls. I'll refinance this. You know, the worst thing you can do when you know God has got somebody in a place trying to teach them something is for you to go fix it for them. Because God is fixed to fix to fix me. Now, I'm talking to you out of my own personal experience. And I'm telling you now, nothing wrong with credit cards, and I'll still use them, but I tell you what, I make sure that I can at least knock that thing out in, in three payments, 90 days, and it's gone if I ever do anything. And most of the time if I do it, it's because they're giving me zero interest. I don't want to preach a message on finance. I'm just telling you my own story. Because God fixed to fix to fix me, and this was back around 2009, 2010, and I just said, Somebody says, well, just file bankruptcy. I said, I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor in this community. There's no way I'm going to put my name in the newspaper. As if you file bankruptcy, nobody's, nobody's throwing stones at you. I knew I couldn't do it. Legally, if it's you're out, there's nothing ethically wrong with it, great. Praise God. Good for you. I just knew that it would ruin what I was called. God never gives me the easy way out. Are you hearing me this morning? Whatever you're facing, there will come a time that you will either change out of inspiration or you will change out of desperation. And more times than not, we reach that desperation point where we have to cry out to God and everything's gone and we're left alone in the camp. We're on our face and we're wrestling with God. This morning as I close this message, I just want to tell you, God's inside the cocoon with you. And he's outside the cocoon waiting and he's cheering you on. And he's going, come on, push, don't quit. Keep wrestling, keep fighting. Because I'm going to bless you in ways that you can't even begin to ask or imagine. But you've got to keep on keeping on. You can't quit. Look at your neighbor and say, don't quit. Lights are down. If you would, please bow your heads with me in your hearts right now. Lord.